Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thank you so much for joining us today and or catching us online. We're so glad that you're with us. Uh, would you stand and we'll worship the Lord this morning. Fighting our battles. 
encouraged today by the fact that the Lord himself is fighting our battles. That's a scriptural theme throughout scripture that he is the one who goes before and behind and with and that he's fighting these battles for us. Oftentimes it can feel like what we're facing is insurmountable. Uh, So let's read this. Let's read this confession uh, together uh, as a way of saying, God, we, we can't we can't actually do this on our own. Uh, We need for you to fight the battles uh, and the work that is before us is your work. Let's read this together. I come to you, O Christ, in dismay, fearing I might fail in what is now before me. A failure drive me, O Lord, to collapse here. Upon your strong shoulders and here to rest, reminded again that I and all of your children are always utterly dependent upon you to bring to completion in and through us the good works which you have prepared beforehand for us to do it is not my own work that is before me now but yours use then O lord even my failures and my fears of failing to advance your purposes in my heart and in your kingdom and in this world my confidence is only in you amen amen I see clearly now 
I know nothing has been wasted, no failure or mistake. You're an artist and a potter, I'm the canvas and the clay. You make all things, you make all things work together for my future and for my good. You make all things work together for your glory and for your name. When I doubt it, Lord, remind me when I doubt it, Lord, remind me I'm wonderfully made. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. When I doubt it, Lord, remind me I'm wonderfully made. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. I know not has been wasted no failure or mistake you're an artist and a potter I'm the canvas and the clay you make all things you make all things work together for my future and you make all things work together for your glory and for your name. Sing it again. You make all things. You make all things work together for my future and for my good. You make all things work together for your glory and for
seated. Thanks, Tyler. Man, I love that last song. That last song has really grown on me lately, and I appreciate uh, doing that. Well, good morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. There's four pastors here. I'm generally the one that you see most often uh, on Sunday mornings uh, preaching, and uh, we are part of Redemption Church, Arizona. Redemption Church, we're the Arcadia flavor. Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, 
and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And um, pre-pandemic, some of you might remember that every week we used to do something called an all of life interview, because we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And uh, with, with uh, how we've sort of restructured our services and, and such, uh, it hasn't really been able to fit very well with the new structure. And the structure is always evolving. This is what we're doing for now, those key words for now. As things change, we'll keep, we'll keep evolving. But uh, we wanted to start reintroducing at least maybe once a month uh, the All of Life interviews because it gives some great insight into uh, some of the other people who are part of this faith community here in Arcadia, uh, what they're up to and what God is doing in their lives. And so uh, I wanted to invite this morning J.T. Ruff up. He's going to be our, our uh, victim this morning. So come on up, J.T. <laughs> hey, Frank. How are you? Hey, everybody. Good to see you. So the idea is you're going to get to know JT a little bit, and then you're going to get to understand what God has been doing in his life through this community and also just um, uh, through not only here at Redemption, but everything else that you've been doing. So uh, right out of the gate, I got some questions here. Um, I, want you, I want to know where you're from. Tell us a little bit about your family. So this is four questions in one, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family, what you're doing in Phoenix, because you're not from Phoenix originally, and how long you've been at Redemption Arcadia. Okay, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I got a Portland shirt right here. I'm 20 minutes south of Portland in like a little town. I did this accidentally, by the way, so it happened to work out. Um, it was a yeah, God thing. Exactly. So I was there for 18 years, um, and I wanted to go to school anywhere outside of the place that re rained 300 days a year. Um, so I was looking at Florida, I was looking at Tennessee, and I came across this place called Grand Canyon University. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting paid for that, by the way. And so, so then, so then I prayed about it, and God told me you need to go here. Like, like this. I don't. I was trying to do music in college, so I was looking at trade schools, and I happened to stumble upon this university. So, went to Grand Canyon, uh, came to Phoenix, and I met the uh, creative arts director here at Redemption Arcadia, Caleb Wiseman. Yeah, that's his title, by the way. And so. <laughs> And then, so I, I didn't even know Caleb had a title. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I came here in August to um, do an internship. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had been here a couple times prior, and I really enjoyed the church, and I really enjoyed where the church was headed. So I wanted to get involved and find a way to find a way to work. So you you came in, you you kind of checked us out, and then you got involved with Caleb and eventually Tyler became part of the music ministry, and then uh, did an internship with us last semester. But that internship then grew into, you're now actually part-time staff here. So tell us a little bit about how that worked and what you're doing for us now and, yeah. and, and all that. So. So, so I came to the internship thinking I was going to um, like just be like playing guitar a lot. That was kind of like what I thought I wanted to do. And then Kay was like, we need you other places. And I was like, great, I need to learn other places. So I'm in the back a lot, if you guys don't see me. Um, I'm doing the sound, I'm doing the live stream, I'm doing the slides. And um, basically during the internship, I kind of took a big step where the church really trusted me to be hands-on with the Christmas service and with the Christmas video and kind of take a big role on that. So as I got more comfortable with the church, like all you guys and the staff became comfortable with me and it just became like, I had to do it. It was, it was a great team. And, and I'll just, I, I mean, I, I'm biased, but I'll say that Christmas Eve video was incredible and you were a big part of that. I am not the only one that should take credit I, I, for that. I understand but yes. that, but it was really, yeah. it was really, really good. Right. 
Uh, so um, you are obviously, at least to me, and those who have seen your YouTube videos, and those, I had to mention that. Okay. We were thinking about having one of his videos playing as he walked up here, but uh, we thought that was a little bit overboard. But at any rate, also everything that you've done here, you're obviously gifted and talented in music and in, and in the technical aspect of production, which we appreciate. Uh, the question really is, how, how do you see God using that to proclaim the gospel? So I, I grew up in a, in a church in that 20 minutes south of Portland place that rains a lot. I grew up in a church there, and I really didn't enjoy um, the leadership where they were, were doing the worship. And I, I felt kind of pulled away from worship when I was in high school. And I, and I got here, and I got to this church, and I realized that, like, my abilities that God gave me is the perfect way to like bring praise to like the kingdom. And I mean, there are people who talk really well. There are people who do um, their skills really well. There are people who do music really well, people who do graphics really well. And all of those things within a church make it happen. And that's, that's praise to Jesus is what I believe. And I think, I think that's just what God gave me. That, that's part of the body of Christ that Paul talks about in First Corinthians 12. Well, we're, we're glad that you're here. We appreciate everything that you do. It's been fun having you on staff and getting to know you. And, and so it's just been a blessing. So let me pray for you. And, uh, um, and then when, when I'm done praying, thank JT for coming up here and sharing. So Lord God, uh, I do thank you for um, uh, JT's ministry to us, uh, his uh, servanthood, his heart for that. I thank you for the way that you equip and gift people, all aspects in this church, and then you call them to express those gifts for the glory of your gospel, for the glory of your son, for the glory of your kingdom. I pray that you would bless not only JT, but uh, everything that he's doing, everybody he's involved with, uh, the fact that he's uh, coming to us from uh, GCU. I just pray that you would bless his ministry there as well. Bless him in, in uh, his studies uh, and God, that you would be given all the glory in the midst of that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming up, JT. Thanks, guys. So I'm very excited to let you know that you get to stand up again now for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from John chapter 7 and 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Stephanie. One of the best parts, I think, of being part of Redemption Church, Arizona, uh, is our weekly preaching collective. And we get to sit with all the other pastors and talk about these passages, and it's just really helpful. Uh, I admit that I'm, I'm one of those persons in the midst of that who um, I prepare a long way out. Uh, I need to give my messages, my sermons, my preaching, time to percolate. Uh, In academia, they call that refrigerator time. You know, for those of you who are students, I think this is helpful. Don't write the first draft of your paper the night before it's due. Write it a week before it's due, and then toss it on top of the refrigerator and walk away from it and give it time to percolate, and then go back and edit it. And you'll be surprised at how much better it can be. And, and so I do that with sermons. And as a result, I tend to go to the preaching collectives, which are 10 days or 11 days before that Sunday when that passage is going to be preached. And I tend to feel like I've already got my sermon put to bed. And, and I'm not going to learn anything there. And then every single Wednesday for the last nine plus years, after the preaching collective, I have to spend a couple of hours reworking my sermon because I learned so much more from those guys. And it was at the preaching collective this last week that I heard this from one of the pastors. It had nothing to do with any of the passages we were looking at, but it has to do with the church. And I just wanted to share it because it was so, it just, it just struck me. He said this, the church is an enigma Who would pick something this messy to do the most important work in the universe? You think about that. The church is, we are the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. And by the way, we do see a connection to this passage today, this, this idea. Christ is the groom. He is holy. He is without sin. But he calls imperfect, sinful people to lead his church. And we do it imperfectly and sinfully. And it's a mess. Can I get an amen? (laughs) It is, generally. I just want to find a good church. Well, define good, because there's going to be sin and disruption and trouble in every single church. The church is an enigma. It's something that's hard to understand, because it's been called the people in the church, which is what the church is, to do the most important work in the universe, which is to be ambassadors of Christ and to be ministers of reconciliation. So just think about that uh, as we work through every Sunday and every week our community and what we do with God's word and what we do with Jesus. Uh, Terrible segue. I want to mention that um, on this Tuesday night, so in two days, the, uh, the first of, let me back up, I'm not doing this well. Redemption Church Arizona has started doing a series of uh, videos on our YouTube channel uh, called Inside Redemption. And we've done three or four of those we do once a month. I was actually in one a couple of months ago. 
Uh, and now we're going to start doing, once every six months, we're going to start doing Inside Redemption Live, where it's actually a live event for an hour and a half, usually at uh, the Gilbert Congregation because it can house so many more uh, people. But we're having our first one of those this coming Tuesday night, and it's going to be a forum on the gospel, uh, race, and the church. Uh, there are going to be two different panels talking about two different uh, topics that are involved with the gospel race in the church, and then it's going to end with uh, Luke Simmons and Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor over Redemption Arizona, having a conversation. But I'm going to be on the first of those uh, panels, which talks about our convictions as a church. And so we would invite you to tune in on our uh, YouTube channel, or if you want, you are also invited to go out to uh, Gilbert and, and attend in person. There are about 400 spots that are available for that. You have to register if you want to uh, go, out, go out there in person, but otherwise you can watch it uh, on our YouTube channel. So we are working our way through the Gospel of John. And I want to make sure this is clear for us this week and next week. I'm going to talk about it next week. But this passage that we encounter today is a bit of a hiccup in the chronological narrative of the Gospel of John. So 753 through 811 is a, a little bit of a strange and different passage. And let me just say this. There are certain passages in the Bible, and this would be one of them. There are certain pa passages in the Bible that whenever you encounter them, there are things that are always said about them, and things, these things must be said about them. You have to teach it. No matter how many times you've sat there and heard this about this passage, you're going to have to sit there and listen to it again because there's always going to be somebody in the audience who hasn't heard these things and may have those questions that you used to have, and we need to answer those questions. And this passage is one of those passages that has two of those questions that should be pretty clear right from the get-go. And we're going to deal with one of them right now, and we're going to deal with one of them later on in the message. So the first thing we have to do is talk about how 753 through 811, this passage is likely not a part of the original Gospel of John, but was added later. However, this passage is definitely in Jesus' character. There is nothing in this passage that would contradict Jesus' character. But what we have to understand, if you look in your, in your Bible, whether in your Bible, uh, uh, an actual Bible or an online Bible, whatever it is, there are going to be these brackets. And sometimes there's even a note in there that says, this passage is not contained in the earliest of manuscripts. It's not. Uh, the earliest manuscripts of John go from 752 right into 812. There's no break in the narrative. It does start to appear in some of the later manuscripts. And by that, I mean like decades later, not centuries later. A few of the ancient manuscripts that we have, and, and again, they're not the earliest manuscripts and not many manuscripts by any stretch of the imagination, also place this story toward the end of John, not right in the middle of it. And a couple of the manuscripts have it actually toward the end of the Gospel of Luke. So sometimes you might even be able to find it in Luke. The other uh, thing about this passage is that uh, it uses language that is not particular to John. You can do a, a uh, textual study of the type of language that John uses uh, versus the type of language that Peter uses in his letters or Paul uses or Luke uses. The, light, the type of language that's in this passage is not similar to anything else we find in the Gospel of John or even any of, other, any of John's other writings. But 
It is similar to language that you're going to find in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially Luke. It, it really reads more like Luke's language than anybody's. And then I, I mentioned this already, but I just I want to hit it again. If you're reading John straight through, you will notice that 753 through 811 seems to interrupt the narrative flow of what's going on on this last day of the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Yet according to Craig Keener, who is an exceptional uh, Gospel of John scholar, he writes that most scholars consider this an authentic Jesus story that's simply out of place in the narrative. In other words, while it wasn't originally written down by John, this event was part of the confirmed oral tradition about Jesus that was circulating in the early church. In other words, it actually did happen. Remember, we need to remember at this time in history, maybe, maybe 3% of the population could actually read. And so oral tradition at that time was just about as good as a written record. That's not true today, but it was true in many respects 2,000 years ago. The idea of, of circulating manuscripts orally was, was kind of an accepted practice. Uh, lastly, there are also a few records of history uh, of some of the ancient church father, uh, fathers who claim that they were eyewitnesses uh, to this event as well. So moving from that, before we actually get into the text, there's something else I want to mention about this text. Um, this passage, I think, in light of what we're going through today culturally, could be called an anti-whataboutism -whatabout passage, an anti-whataboutism passage. Now, you may not know what whataboutism is. I'm going to explain that and then talk about why I think it fits here. So here's what whataboutism is. Used primarily today in the realm of politics, whataboutism is the technique or practice of responding to an accusation or difficult question by making a counter-accusation or raising a different issue in order to, to deflect from your own shortcomings and direct people away from your misdeeds. So it's a method for politicians and political commentators, and now, frankly, just about anyone, to keep from being held accountable for poor decisions, bad behavior, or sin. Some would say it this way. Whataboutism is the lazy way of dealing with your own shortcomings. Just point at someone else. In other words, it's the more sophisticated 21st century version of blame shifting that started in the garden with Adam and Eve, and humans have been practicing ever since. If you know Genesis chapter 3, the very first sin that's committed, it's, it's disobeying God and eating the fruit from the tree, and God comes, and he calls out the man, and he, and he says, what is this that you have done? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from. And what does the man do? He doesn't say, yes, I did, and I was wrong. That was a wrong thing to do. He doesn't say that. He says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. What about her? And oh, by the way, God, what about you? What about ism? And so then God turns to the woman, and he says, what is this that you have done? And she says, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. What about the serpent? He's the problem. He deceived me. I'm not the problem. What about the serpent? What about the serpent? Well, this passage kind of sounds like Jesus is practicing whataboutism, right? Because he says to them, he says, whoever is without sin, 
you be the first one to cast a stone. In a sense, he's saying, well, what about you? What about you? Okay. Well, I would argue that the beauty of Jesus doing it here is that no one can what about back to Jesus. Who's going to what about back to Jesus? Well, what about you? Jesus would say, well, what about me? When did I sin? What about me? I'm going to the cross to pay for your sins. What about me? I've come to save you from your sins. What about me? Of course, with absolutely no awareness of the irony that they are steeped in, people today use this story all the time as a sort of Christian whataboutism. When a brother or sister in Christ is doing the biblical gospel work of confronting uh, and, and challenging somebody's sin, rather than humbly listening to the correction, the common response is, well, what about you? You're not perfect. What gives you the right? And then they usually say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, you're not Jesus, so you really shouldn't say that. Jesus is the only one who legitimately can say that. And so now, for the most part, in American churches, we rarely do the gospel work of confronting sin. People just aren't open to it. And that is, I think, a profound weakness in our character and theology today. So on that cheery note, let's get into the passage today. And I'm going to read through the passage in three different parts and, and make some comments that will be helpful to our application today. So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and, and, Pharisee, uh, the, scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of Moses, now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to Jesus to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So look at verse 5. Verse 5, the law does command the stoning of such women. It does. The problem is that the law also commands the stoning of such men, and not just such women. So where's the man? Why didn't they bring the man? It's not answered in the text, but I think that's a legitimate question. Why didn't they bring? If they caught her in the act, was, was he just too slippery for them? I mean, what, what, so what happened there? A lot of commentators make the connection between the idea that the men who were bringing the woman knew the woman pretty well in her vocation, if you want to call it that. That's one of the sort of the text behind the text suppositions that a lot of people have in the midst of this. And, and partly why maybe Jesus is really not thrilled with this whole situation and really wants to be able to call them out. And then look at verse 6. Verse 6 is the key to their trap. They're trying to trap him. And there's a couple of things here. First of all, uh, the professional religious people. I call them the perps, P-R-P. The perps saw Jesus as presenting himself as a prophet of mercy, redemption, restoration, and renewal. That's kind of the way they saw his ministry. And second of all, 
The Roman government did not allow executions without the official formal approval of the governor, which is very difficult to obtain, especially in the midst of religious disputes, which this is. So, if Jesus decides he's going to pronounce Mosaic law judgment on this woman, yes, you're right, she needs to be stoned, she's an adulteress. If Jesus does that, they're going to have him in at least two ways. They've got him trapped in at least two ways. Number one, they're going to be able to say, well, he's really not that merciful. So he's really not a prophet of restoration, renewal, and redemption. And second of all, by making that declaration, he would be breaking the Roman law because he would advocate for an execution without official Roman consent. So all they would have to do then was, is report Jesus to the Roman authorities, and the problem of Jesus is finally eliminated. And remember, when they wanted to crucify Jesus later in the story, they still had to go to the Roman governor, Pilate, to get approval to be able to do it. They had to do that. There's one more scenario that would be acceptable to those trying to trap him. Let's say Jesus goes the other way and he decides not to pronounce judgment. And if he did act as a prophet of mercy, restoration, and redemption, they would then accuse him of not being a true prophet or rabbi because he did not uphold the law of Moses. So they've got him. They've got him. It's not, it's not a bad trap as far as traps go. They thought this through. There are three possible bad outcomes for Jesus, and of course no one could imagine Jesus finessing his way out of this. But of course Jesus turns the tables on his accusers, which might be a good lesson for us. If, if we decide that we're going to draw swords with Jesus, if we decide that we're going to draw swords with the Creator, with the Messiah, with the Savior, that might not be such a good idea drawing swords with him. So then look at the next three verses, seven through nine. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them. So he bends down, starts writing in the ground, and, and they don't slow down. They continue to press him. They keep asking him the questions. And, and he says to them, let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So here's the second issue in this text that always must be dealt with. What did Jesus write? I'm dying to know what Jesus was writing. What did he write? Okay, here you go. There's many guesses to this, and I'll run through just six of them. Okay. So Jeremiah 17, 13 says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Some people think that Jesus, because these men have turned away from God and his mercy and his compassion and his correction with this woman, they, they have turned away from God, and so Jesus is writing all of their names on the ground. That's one thought. There's a subthought to this. Um, I didn't know there were people far more cynical than I am, but I like this is a possibility. Here you go. Jesus wasn't writing the names of all the men who were there, just the ones who had also slept with this woman. That would be, he starts writing the names, and pretty soon they're going, I think there's a similarity in those names. This is a problem for us. Okay. Deuteronomy 9.10. 
The Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with Moses on the mountain. So now the finger that wrote the laws is the finger that interprets and applies the law. Consider Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar, Daniel chapter 5, uh, King Belshazzar is the king of Babylon right at the very end of Babylon's supremacy on the world scene. And the very night that Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire, Belshazzar is leading a huge party in the citadel there, thousands of people there, and he's drinking and having a great time thinking that Babylon is impenetrable, they'll never be taken down. And in the midst of the party, a hand appears with a finger and starts writing on the wall. And we all know what was written on the wall to Belshazzar. Just say it with me. Meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. We all know that, right? Meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. What that means is you have been weighed, you have been judged, and you are found wanting. And guess what? This is the end of your reign. And it was that very night that Babylon was conquered at the end of October in 539 BC. It was that very night that the Medo-Persian Empire came in and sacked Babylon and conquered Babylon. So maybe Jesus is writing, meeny, meeny, tackle parson. He's writing, you've been weighed, you've been judged, and you've been found wanting about these men. Now here's some other possibilities not necessarily rooted in scripture. Uh, first of all, it was, it was a common and well-known first century practice for judges to write down a verdict in a case before declaring the verdict verbally. So Jesus could have been writing not guilty or some such thing. Also, I, I admit I like this one, although we can't prove it. In some non-Western cultures, when there is a public confrontation, the act of writing on the ground with your finger is a symbolic way of saying to your adversary, I am standing steadfast in my position and I am refusing to back away. In other words, it's like drawing a line in the sand. And then finally, a lot of scholars say this, and this, is, this could be true. I, I think it's good. It could have just been a way for Jesus to give the men some time to think about what he had said and, in fact, maybe give them some time to see the log in their own eye before he calls it out. Again, Craig Keener offers this. Since the narrative offers so few clues as to what was written, perhaps the content of the writing is beside the point. And I think Keener has a point here. Uh, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, used to say all the time, just because you have a question for God, it does not obligate him to answer. He's God, we are not. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask questions. But it does mean that he's not going to answer all of them. He's going to answer the most important questions for us. And maybe if he's not giving us an answer, we're getting the question wrong. We should think about that. And then in verse 9, it says that after he said, look, whoever is without sin... It was the eldest men who walked away first. Is there anything there? And I think maybe there is. We, we believe that there is no detail in Scripture that, that is there superfluously, that there, there's a point for that detail. Now, it's not clear why that detail is there, but this is generally uh, what, we, what we think. Generally, generally speaking... It is true that the older we get and the more we experience life, the more we are willing to assess and admit to our own shortcomings rather than those of others. Generally, that is true. 
Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that younger people have no self-awareness and older people are humbler. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that time and experience are excellent teachers if we're willing to receive that teaching in our life. Time and experience are excellent teachers if we're willing to receive it. And by the way, before we hit these last two verses, notice that Jesus is the only one qualified to not walk away, and yet he doesn't throw a stone. That's pretty interesting. So here are the last two verses, and we're going to end with these two verses and two really serious points of application. That's how we're going to wrap this up, because there are two great points of application here. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So this is a big deal. Those of you who are note takers, you should write this down. Jesus meets the woman where she is, but then also insists that she has some place to go. He meets her where she is, but then insists that there is also some place to go. In other words, Jesus shows the woman compassion, but also gives her a command. He shows compassion, but also gives a command. And this certainly applies to us. I hear all the time, not outside the church, inside the church, meaning meaning people who attend church, people who would claim Christ as their savior, people who claim to know Jesus. I hear this all the time. Jesus doesn't really love me if he expects me to change. In fact, the only way that Jesus can really show his love for me is not only not to expect me to change, but also he should affirm where I am and he should celebrate where I am. It's about Jesus conforming to me, not me being called to Jesus' kingdom. That is a common view by individuals in the church today. And it's a problem because there's nothing in Scripture that demonstrates that that's the way it works. In fact, Jesus wanting you to be transformed is the greatest indication there is of his love for you other than the cross. Other than the cross. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? Look to the cross and look to the, then to the fact that when he invades your life, he is involved in the great work of transforming you. The Greek word is metamorpheo. We get the English word metamorphosis from it. We will experience transformation. His compassion and gentleness is clearly shown by meeting this woman where she is, no matter where she is. His compassion and gentleness, gentleness to us clearly is shown by meeting us where we are. We don't say this very often, but we should say it more often. We want you to come to church as you are. If you've never been to church, don't pretty yourself up first. Don't make yourself worthy of God first. Don't, don't do any of that. We, we just want you to come and hear the gospel. Come, and, come, come as you are to church because Jesus will meet you where you are. But then allow Jesus 
through his spirit and through his word and through his community to start doing the transforming work in your life. Allow him to take you on this journey of transformation. So he meets us where we are, and that is a beautiful thing, but his perfect, gentle, and compassionate love will never allow us to stay where we are. He will never leave us where we are. We are sinful, we're flawed, we're in need of correction and transformation and to be made whole. And there are three truths about how his love is expressed in him refusing to allow you, allow you and me to just stay where he meets us. Here's the first one. He makes it possible for you, to be, you and I to be transformed and gives us the power to be transformed. And he does so primarily through the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is filling you. We need to welcome the Holy Spirit. It's not a question of if the Holy Spirit is there. The question is, are we welcoming the Holy Spirit? Are we asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate our lives, to illuminate God's word to us, to illuminate community to us, to help us understand how we fit and how we can be taken on this journey? Welcome the Holy Spirit. Embrace the Holy Spirit coming in your life. Embrace reading his word. And embrace the community of faith, the community of Christ, the body of Christ, which needs you, which needs JT and his gifts and, and needs you and your gifts as well. Those are all transforming agents. Uh, a few weeks ago when Trey was uh, away with the students at camp and Jackie and I got to go up for a while on Saturday, uh, after one of the uh, uh, chapel sessions, um, I was sitting with uh, the, the male leaders of our boys, our, our, our uh, young men who were high school and middle school who were up there, and they were having a discussion about what was brought out during chapel. And the question was asked by, Zach Hines was leading this discussion, and the question was asked by Zach, listen, waiting on God is a really hard thing. God has his timing, we have our timing. Waiting on God is a really hard thing. Uh, where do you find encouragement when you know that God is calling you to wait and be patient? Because it would be helpful to find encouragement and hope when he's telling you, settle down, you need to wait. Because that's hard for us to wait. Where do you find encouragement and hope? And there were some good answers. But then one of the leaders specifically said, and I was thinking to myself, I know this is the yearbook answer. I know this is the answer everybody goes to. But the reason is because it's true. And one of the leaders finally said it. He said, I find hope and encouragement when I'm told to wait in God's word. There are stories in God's word of people who have to wait on God. In the middle of some of the worst situations, Job had to wait on God. That's good to know. The word helps us with that. The spirit fills us. And then in community. One of the best ways to find hope and encouragement is just with somebody else of faith. To verbalize your angst. Research clearly shows that we are way more anxious when we hold this stuff in than when we're able to sit down with some trusted friend in the faith and share it. It's like, now it's out in the open. Maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was. But we have this way of kind of, you know, ruminating on bad things and just making them worse in our mind. Share that stuff in community. Here's the second thing about uh, transforming. First of all, uh, the second thing is this. Um, maybe he has something better for you that you haven't even considered. Again, I run into that all the time. People are like, I, I, 
I, I love Jesus and I'm giving my life to him, but not this part of my life. And then they finally give this part of their life to Jesus, which they never wanted to give up. And months later, they're like, oh my goodness, that was the right thing to do because he has something better for me. I'll, I'll just say this. When I first became a Christian, I, it was not on my radar that I was going to be called out of the marketplace and into vocational ministry. And, and I got to tell you, uh, as hard as vocational ministry can be, it was a better plan for my life than I ever could have conjured on my own and that I never saw coming, and I'm glad it happened. And then third, when you are transformed, you become a blessing to others. Imagine a married couple, and one of the spouses is abusive. Verbally, emotionally, physically, whatever it is, one of the spouses is abusive. And then that spouse comes to Christ and knows Christ. Christ, Jesus, meets that spouse where they are. And the spouse says, okay, Jesus, I love you. I, 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 I take your salvation. But I need to tell you, I, I'm really into this abuse thing. So I'm just going to keep abusing, and you need to affirm that. See, that doesn't work, does it? Jesus is now going to call you to be a servant-hearted spouse to your spouse. Jesus is going to call you to love your spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is going to call you to submit to your spouse with respect and affirmation, even though I know they're not respectable and affirmable all the time. I know they're not lovable all the time, but that's what Jesus is going to call you to. Other people are going to be blessed by that. Let's say that you are an addict of some sort. Jesus is going to call you out of that addiction, and that's going to bless everybody else in your life because you've messed up your relationships, you've messed up your family, you've messed up your work situation, you've taken advantage of friends, you've spent a lot of money, You've made life hard for everybody else. And when you come out of those addictions, it becomes a blessing to others and a testimony of Christ's faithfulness to you. That's why transformation is important, those three reasons. So here's the second point of application as we wrap up. I just want to ask this question. As we look at this account of the woman caught in adultery, who are we? Who are you? Who am I? in this story. Which, which one are we? Are we the ones that, who love pointing out other people's sin? You bet we are. Paul Miller writes this in one of his books. We will obsessively hunt down the sins of others while gladly sheltering our own. Are we the professional religious people? Often we are, even if you take out the word professional. We become religious people. Are we the woman? Certainly, we're the woman. Are we also the men who slink away after they're confronted from Jesus? Yes, always. And I think you know where I'm going. The only one we're not in this story, the only one we are not, is Jesus. And that, here's what that means. It means we need Jesus. The only one we're not is Jesus, and that means we need him. Not casually, but desperately, we need him. I think it's ironic. In the end, 
these men did a good thing by bringing the woman to Jesus. It's just too bad that they didn't stick around. How about us? Are we going to stick around? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for however this story ended up in Scripture. Because it does demonstrate and show Jesus' character and his calling and his compassion. And it also calls us to something that we know is hard and challenging, but we also know you can empower. So help us to be able to do that. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your son, his ministry, and his work in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have our uh, time of of reflection and response. If you have a a communion kit, that would be great. If you don't, now would be a good time to go to the lobby and and grab one. Um, We're getting there eventually. We're getting to that point. We're on the last night of Jesus' life. He's with his buddies, even the one who's going to betray him. And he institutes, if you want to use that word, this, this meal that is a meal of confession and it's a meal of celebration, confessing our sin and celebrating our salvation in Jesus. The bread being Jesus' body broken for us, the cup, the juice, the wine being the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. And we're reminded by Paul of the eternal nature of coming to the Lord's table because he tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup now, we proclaim the Lord's death then until he comes again when he comes in the second coming. So let's do that right now. Who the sun sets free, who is free indeed, I'm a child of God, yes I
scripture and praying it to the Lord that it might be true over us. My prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.